Public CEO Report is a podcast that provides insights about the public sector and public policy for the benefit of decision makers and leaders powering our communities. I'm your host, writer Todd Smith, and today we're joined by Erica Manuel, Executive Director for the Institute for Local Government. Erica, welcome to the Public CEO Report. Thank you so much for having me. So what the heck is the Institute for Local Government? That is a good question. It is a question a lot of people ask. Um, the Institute for Local Government is a nonprofit affiliate. It's a, It's been around for 65 years, and we're actually the training and education affiliate of the League of Cities, or Cal Cities, the Special Districts Association, and CSAC, the Counties Association. So we, um, we support about 2,500 local agencies up and down California um, and have been serving them in a number of ways for, like I said, 65 years. That is a very long time. So what I appreciate about that is that you end up with your fingers into pretty much all aspects of local government, cities, counties, and all these special districts. And for those in the audience that aren't really familiar, special districts would be like water agencies, vector control districts, cemetery districts. Yeah, fire districts, like recreation parks. I mean, so many of the services that touch, especially residents, are those special district type agencies. Even some utilities, right, are special districts as well. Yes, indeed. So, uh, and how do you help them be more successful? How, how is local government made better or more effective as a result of the work of ILG? Yeah, so, you know, that's a, it's an important question. So it's evolved over the years. What ILG started as was specifically for the League of Cities. We were their research arm. They did a lot of reports and white papers and very, very deep, you know, municipal finance style, leadership and governance style focused um, efforts. We have evolved over time as government has evolved. And so one of the things that we love, and and to be fair, I've been with ILG for two years now. And so in my time in those two years, you know, we've done a real deep dive on what is the need that local governments have and how can we continue to be that kind of nimble and effective support for local agencies. So the answer to your question is, we provide the services and resources that local agencies actually need, and especially around issues that are complex and help them navigate the complexity that they're facing. So um, we do education and training primarily. We don't do as much resource, uh, research anymore. We also do a number of like capacity building, technical assistance type things, um, and also facilitation. Um, and the key here is that we want to identify really key areas that we focus on, but the goal is for us to always be responsive to what local government needs because their needs are changing and their their experiences are changing as, as the dynamics of the communities change around them. When you look at the diversity of the entities that you end up supporting, given the breadth of the three major organizations you're affiliated with, I guess what's what there must be some commonalities and needs among all of them as local government agencies. What what do you what are some of those that rise to your attention? Yeah, you know, there's you know, the pillars that we have identified as our primary focus areas really do align with all three different types of local agencies. And I'll tell you about our pillars. Um, we we could have a really broad mission, right? And it would be a lot of work and a lot of activity. And we are a small non small nonprofit, so we have four main program areas: uh, leadership and governance, which includes things like ethics, right, and and governance structures and leadership principles. So that's number one. Number two is public engagement. Number three is sustainability, resilience. And number four is workforce and civics education. And so those are the four main buckets of work that ILG uh, kind of really dabbles in. 
we dabble pretty deeply in, <laughs> but those are the ones that we have identified across cities, counties, and special districts that there's consistency um, and where there are definitely opportunities for us to continue to provide depth of service, to provide consultation, to provide resources, and you know, public engagement, for example, a lot of the same requirements around transparency and, and, and public meetings, those kinds of things are consistent across agencies. I appreciate that you refer to them as pillars, uh, not just because, uh, well, because ultimately the idea of a pillar is that it, it holds up a very important beam or function within the architecture of governance. And I love uh, that you support that. <laughs> Those four areas that you described are indeed uh, super foundational to supporting the apparatus that is good governance. I mean, I, you know, ethics alone, like ethics in local government, ethics in government in general, super important to people's trust for the institutions that uh, they allow to govern them, right? And when that trust erodes, the willingness to allow the government to govern you, if you don't trust that government, erodes quickly with it, and then you descend back into chaos. So just that one pillar alone is so foundational. I feel like We've taken it for granted for so long, and that is a mistake. It's a mistake to take that for granted. Like it's something you work at every day. I absolutely love that you said that. I mean, I love every one of the pillars of work that we do and that we work around, but this one in particular, especially in the last few years has really been for me foundational because to your point, you know, we've seen what the electorate and what residents feel about government in the last few years, more than ever between the pandemic, between that contentious election cycle. You know, we've seen how communities either trust or don't trust their governments and what that looks like and how it plays out at the local level. And so, you know, every one of our pillars is really around building trust in their community, making sure that they understand the value of local government and how they can help shape it and engage with it. But at the same time, um, it's really, really critical that that leadership and governance pillar stays a foundation for ILG for that very reason you mentioned. It's like, you know, those are the things we take for granted, but it's it's really important, especially for those newly elected officials, those new staff members, knowing how important their roles are and the role that they play as upstanding leaders is important. Yeah. Uh, a couple other just logistical items, too. So you made a, a reference to being a small nonprofit. How many staff people are at the Institute? About 10. Okay. Uh, and then speaking of governance structures, uh, you have a govern board of governors, correct? <laughs> yeah. All right. And, because there are 23 of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you're staff members, quite a few consultants and 23, up to 23 board members. I would just say that ILG staff is pretty wily and it takes 23 people to keep you guys in line. So that, that's, uh, not, I'll just have, that's, that's not untrue. <laughs> That's how I'll interpret that. Uh, yes. And your current board chair is a fellow named Rod Gould. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. Uh, so Rod, for in, within the city manager community, Rod Gould's a very well-known name. He's a very respected city manager, former city manager. Uh, I know he was in Santa he Monica. In Santa Monica. And, He's been up and down the state, but Santa yeah. Monica, I think, is where he retired from. Yes. And uh, just uh, I know Rod personally. I've done some work with Rod. He's just a great guy. So it's it was really exciting for me to see him uh, rise to that. And, you know, I... Obviously, I think you guys are very lucky to have Rod's insights and leadership and that function as as uh, president of your board. I am not even, but uh, like, kind of like sucking up and saying I absolutely adore Rod. He's amazing. He's been a fantastic board chair. And the one that I had when I joined ILG was Michelle Beal Bonnery, also amazing. I um, I have worked in and around organizations with boards for a really long time and. When I heard, when I joined ILG and I heard they had a 23 member board, I was a little freaked out because you know, you could get, you never know what you're gonna get. Oh yeah. 
I have the most incredible board. It is phenomenal. And we have a board meeting next week and I am not dreading it. I'm looking forward to it. I love these people. They're smart. They are efficient. They are such leaders and pillars of the community. And um, they just, um, they know us so much and they bring so much to our organization. That's good. It's good to have a good board. All right. And then let's talk a little bit about you too, some more, uh, you, your career in public service. I mean, you didn't just kind of wake up two years ago and say, I want to go do this ILG thing. Uh, you actually had some bona fides coming into it. So what were you doing before you did ILG? Yeah. Um, immediately before ILG, I was actually at a local agency. I was at a special district. I was at an electric utility, a public utility. Um, and I was, um, I was recruited there from a state, from sort of state service. And the intention and going there was that they wanted me to create a program around community engagement around um, and, and really build the network and the foundation for how they might leverage and connect their utility programs, you know, the sustainability programs, the energy efficiency programs, but really think more broadly about, you know, how do you get customers to be more loyal? How do you get them to care about the work that a utility does when people think of ele about electricity? Like, I think it was like six minutes of their of, of a year, they think about electricity. How do you get them to connect more? Um, so we did an entire branding exercise. We've done everything from sort of customer engagement to community engagement. I developed programs for them. And by the end of my term there, I was I had run economic development, community development, education, um, and a number of special events and a number of things that kind of really brought a lot of my experience to for um, for utility, um, and it was great. I really enjoyed it, and um, I still uh, spend a lot of time working with that group in in different capacities now in this role. Yeah. Well, and interesting that that function had you working in areas that represent several of the pillars for ILG. So it was a nice, obviously, All the, board the did pillars job they found you. It was a really interesting mix. And I came from state service. I was a Schwarzenegger appointee prior to that. And before that, I was in the in the private sector. But really what I found is that, you know, government touches so many different industries. It touches so many different categories of work. And so, uh, you know, my path wasn't, I would say, a straight one. I'd say it was a bit circuitous. But so many of the things that I've done professionally link up with the work that I do and they build on it, uh, builds on each other. It's just been a fantastic run. Bonus points for using the word circuitous. That was excellent. Well, well you. done. Good word. <laughs> we need more good words like that. All right. So uh, next question. What is working well in uh, local government today in California? Oh, my goodness. Well, you know, you touched on this a little bit when you asked me what I had been kind of what my background was. Um, I've worked in and around government for a really long time in a number of roles, right? I mean, even when I was in the private sector, I was building coalitions of local government leaders and those kinds of things. And then at the state level, lots of local government, um, you know, affiliates and, and friends and partners. Um, and one thing that has been consistent across the board is just the people in local government, I think, are the one of the best assets that we have. And I say that without any um, expectation. It's, it's really that um, the people that I know, and I mean personally, and even those that you know, I don't know, but I see working all have the best interests of their communities at heart. There's nobody that goes into public service, first of all, to get rich. And second of all, the notoriety that comes with it, the pressures that come with it, they're all there to try and do a good job and to try and be better. And it's just really, I think, um, heartwarming for me to see how hard local agency leaders work. We work directly with staff, directly with elected officials a lot. They work really hard. They sacrifice a lot and their hearts in the right place. They don't always do everything right but they sure. mean well. And that empathy, I think, is really important. And the foundation of their intent is really, really important. And I think when you start there, that's going to that's gonna propel local government and make 
the changes that need to be made in government can be made more efficiently when people like that with the right heart are there. Yeah, absolutely true. And if it wasn't the case, it'd be harder to fix uh, that fundamentally, right? It would just be impossible yeah. to fix. Yeah. Uh, okay, so that was good. Now the harder question, what is wrong or what is broken in local <laughs> government? That is such a loaded question. Um, I will be honest with you, there are quite a few things that could be tweaked in local government. I don't think anybody in government would say that there's not. Um, but I'll say more recently, I've seen, um, let's let's take it even in 2020. You know, we we experienced a pretty polarizing election cycle at the national level. We had a very interesting four years where so much came to light and social media has grown. As you know, as a communications expert, social media has changed the way we communicate. I have seen at the local level a surprising amount of polarization that I don't think I saw before and partisanship that I, I don't think I saw before. Um, and it's growing. And it used to be that local government, while it still is nonpartisan, it, 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 it seems to be a little bit more feeding into the partisanship. Um, and that, that I think is a challenge um, because it does kind of complicate communication. It complicates trust. It complicates transparency in that relationship building. Um, and I do think it's important for local governments to, and especially the elected leaders, to work closely together um, and really understand one another and empathize with one another and try to collaborate. So. That's one thing I see. Um, the other thing I'll say is externally, uh, people still don't know how government works. Mm -hmm. uh, people being the everyday, you know, mom, pop, you know, Joe, Jane, they don't understand local government. They don't understand who does what. I, oh, there's an anecdote of someone, a mayor told me once that he got a complaint because the, the movie theater changed the time of his movie. And so he complained to the mayor. There's not an awareness of what happens right. at what level and who does what. And that complicates an expectation management. And so government's kind of at a disadvantage for that purpose because they can't always meet expectations if the expectations aren't clear. Um, and then I sure. think, too, um, the last thing I will say is that government, the wheels of change still move real slowly. They do. They just, um, and, and they're getting better but it's still difficult to really make systemic change. And so there are some things that foundationally need to be adjusted in the government, in the government structure, and those are hard to adjust. Um, and so it's going to take, you know, a lot of work. People are committed to it, but I do think that um, there are some things that might need to be tweaked and, and it takes some time and a lot of love and effort to get that done. So uh, I, I guess I'll uh, banter back and forth with you on a couple points here and observations. First one, um, you know, when we come off an era when, uh, to your point about partisanship kind of uh, making its way down into the local level and theoretically nonpartisan offices and the division in America, when things like what pillow you choose to buy and what brand of beans you choose to buy become a political statement, it shouldn't mm -hmm. be too surprising that, um, you know, theoretically nonpartisan functions suddenly take on a partisan take at a local level. And I'm not saying it's good. I'm just saying the hyper the hyperpolarization is, is, was bound to trigger to kind of uh, make its way all the way down. Um, uh, and I think even more so, just the idea or the consequences of the pandemic resulting in lockdowns as the most kind of biggest example of the hand oh. of government coming into our, literally coming into our homes, or at least coming to the edge of our homes and forcing them into them, is mm -hmm. uh, the kind of thing that in physics, right, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. Like, okay, you want to push us into our homes, we are going to push back and engage in government. Absolutely. Uh, and so there are... I think that's a natural reaction if you're going to have that kind of um, 
that level of government intrusion into the day-to-day -day lives. And that's not a statement I make right or wrong about the decision that was made. I just think fundamentally that's just psychology and politics. That's how it works. And it's something we haven't experienced, right? This is the first time really that I would say those and that we've, we've been told in that way that this is, we are restricted, right? Yeah. That's not the American way, certainly. No, no. Um, well, and I ended up in a very good conversation with the, a USC professor on the podcast recently where we had a conversation about whether or not once this is all over, are we going to be able to move past partisanship and politics to have a real conversation about what worked and what didn't in response to the pandemic, right? Did masks really work? Yes or no. Did lockdown orders really work? Yes or no. What is the actual risk of outdoor exposure to COVID versus indoor risk exposure to COVID? Uh, I mean, these things are still in flux to this day. So it's just, uh, it'll, that'll be a fascinating kind of uh, post, post mortem. If, if we're able to get one, that's, that's, uh, that's there to deliver for the people. So, um, and then uh, just one other observation on comment. Uh, so as you know, our firm does a ton of outreach and communications work and uh, and you guys do similar, similar type efforts as well, community engagement in particular, but you struck on something that I, I fundamentally agree with and it's an epiphany I think I've had in the last 24 months, which is uh, I sometimes feel like a lot of the work we do for outreach and engagement in the public is really doing the civics 101 education that they didn't get in high school for whatever reason, whatever mm -hmm. determinations and changes in curriculum took place. And uh, so I'm not, you know, I'm not blaming the average person for not understanding the complex layers of governance in California. Like in some ways, maybe that's probably good that they haven't had to deal with that previously, although after the pandemic, they've all had to. Um, but it is indicative to me of just the challenge that we face when we when we need to explain, well, here's what the actual role is, or here's what a CUP actually does, or here's why this issue is not really in our control anymore, right? And classic example to me would be um, kind of a housing policy in California, where on the one hand, if you go to any most communities, there is a significant portion of existing, uh, particularly uh, owners who, uh, homeowners who will, are pretty pro like, hey, we want to have local control on zoning and housing policy, and we kind of like it the way it is. Um, yet they'll turn around and vote for people who are very anti-local control and want to solve housing, at least their definition of how to solve housing, that is very much diametrically opposed. And there's no, and then the public turns around and gets angry with their city for creating a for changing zoning when in truth they voted for the Sacramento officials who actually made that change, not the city. Anyways, I, you know, that's a small diatribe, but I just make the point that I, I think if people could connect, better connect those dots and understand them, they might realize that their elections at the assembly level have consequences at the local levels. I guess my long-winded way of putting that. They do, and you're right, and it's true. I guess I will I will defend the general public and say that, you know, local government is complex, though, right? It's not yeah. easy. I mean, the same way that federal and state government are complex, local government's complex. But I will say that we are not learning about it, and we're not teaching our students and kids about it now. And one of the things ILG does, and one of our pillars of work is civics education. And we do a ton of work with schools, and we do a ton of work um, to under help people understand how does government work and how do they fit in it? And there's a number of reasons for that. One, because we want to have an educated and engaged electorate and we want that to start early. Um, we also wanna have a diverse staff of cities and counties and special districts so that they are embedded in the community, they care about the community, they reflect the community. Those are all important things. 
But we also want to make sure that we're thinking about that pipeline of local government leaders too, right? Because so much of what you're talking about is, is indicative of conversations that happen all over around governments dodgy, governments not evolving, governments not, you know, connecting with the people. Well, the best way to connect government with the people is to make sure that the people are reflective of the government that it's serving. And so that's one of the things that ILG is doing with our youth work, with our civics education work, and with our workforce pipeline work, um, not to prescribe how and who should be working uh, in government, but to make sure that, you know, A, people understand how it works, B, that they think about how they might change it and be a part of it, and C, it helps keep the pipeline full so that we have committed and educated and really um, innovative leaders leading our local agencies. Yeah, which is uh, super important. I mean, having quality staff that want to take over for the next round is um, something I've always appreciated, but even more so just trying to grow my firm. It's foundational to our success is having awesome people on our team who can make a big difference for our clients. So there's still that stigma too of government being super slow and super stodgy and super, you know, like there's a, there's visual, right. That's so, so different. So not true. And, you know, I think there's so many opportunities for people to get connected. Um, I didn't want to discount your comment about the housing policy and the connecting the dots between the, the policies that are maybe pulled, uh, put into place at the local level and the people that vote others in. Um, but there is that disconnect. There's not a clarity on how things actually work and how to get things done or how to get things changed. Yeah. Uh, and somewhat exacerbated also just by the sheer levels of complexity in the governance structure, right? So California has, I would say, I would imagine, I haven't spent a lot of time in other other states looking at the local government, to be fair. But uh, you take something like our regional organizations like SCAG or ABAG mm -hmm. and their role in um, coming up with arena housing numbers and how that trickles down from state policy. I mean, it's, you know, there's a lot of layers of entity in there. So holding in any, any one particular entity responsible for those decisions gets very difficult, right? And now it kind of feels like there's just, once you get through one layer of cake, there's another layer of cake you have to contend with. And, and so that for some many people that can just kind of seem impenetrable. Well, I would say for the general public, there is very little awareness of any of that. Like it is just like, they know that at their fundamental level for them, they can't find a house that's affordable or they, uh, they are afraid of what's coming, right? They don't like the development that's coming and the potential risk to their current state. Um, or they don't understand it at all and they just think it's fine status quo and they're not paying attention at all. So there's there's all these different levels of, of I'd say, general awareness. Sure. And then at the, at the local agency level, this stuff is so complex. The arena six cycle six goals are very aggressive. And then, you know, even local agency leaders are struggling with figuring out how they're going to do it. I mean, it is not easy to understand it, let alone to move it forward and then meet those mandates. And so one of the things that ILG is doing now, um, we launched a couple of months ago, a series with uh, housing and community development and uh, the office of planning and research. We're doing a housing webinar series for this exact reason to outline like some of the key areas related to this housing crisis and how cities and counties in particular, but special districts too, how they can kind of work together to help accomplish some of those goals and what some of those key areas um, of emphasis need to be to meet those that next cycle of goals, because they are absolutely, um, they're aggressive, they're difficult, and they're complex. Yeah. Well, and they're also dealing with a, uh, a dynamic environment too. I was... Um, listening to one of the other podcasts out there, Gimme Shelter. I'm not sure if you've ever listened to that, that podcast. I haven't heard it. At, and um, so they were having a discussion just about pandemic influences on people's choices on where to live. And essentially there has been a modest shift of people moving out of the big urban centers like downtown LA and San, and San Francisco and out to the suburbs, right? So uh, 
there's a lot of people that are voting with their feet and their dollars vacating big cities and going to suburbia, prompted in part, certainly by the pandemic and the desire to have a backyard, maybe some space to live and breathe that wasn't um, they gave them some freedom within the confines of their of their house. But the long term impact of that is expected to at least linger for a while. Um, so, you know, the appetite for high density housing is arguably is down over the last 12 months, just as people have made that shift due to the pandemic changing. So we'll see. That is a it's a very complex issue, which we're not going to solve here today. And I certainly don't want to distract from my mission at hand, which is to talk a little bit more about ILG, certainly. Um, Real quick, a little couple tangible examples of because you talked before about the education work you're doing with cities, counties, special districts. Like, what are some of those like the ethics? So, you it's at one, two, three, four training. Is that you guys do that? We do, we do that training, um, and we also do training on. Uh, it's AB twelve thirty four is our primary, and there's mandated trainings around that. It's cycled around every two years. We have to make sure everybody gets the, uh, all those requirements done, and we work with law firm partners to work through that. And all of our uh, affiliates also, you know, ask us to sort of support that effort. We also go in and help special jur jurisdictions with special trainings on that as well, if they're not able to make it to one of those those uh, particularly scheduled ones. And the pandemic obviously complicated it a little bit, but now they're all virtual. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, let's talk about that too real quick in terms of mode of delivery. So I would say ILG was particularly effective throughout the pandemic of shifting to a webinar style format to deliver a lot of your content. Um, I did, uh, you know, full disclosure, I had the opportunity to join you for one of your webinars and have a conversation with your audience. And I feel like we had 200 people on that, which was in local government terms, a pretty astronomical turnout. But my recollection is you even had a couple of webinars initially that had 600 or so people on them. Is that correct? Oh yeah, we're trending really, really high. Um, it's It's been, we have, and thank you for that. We've actually been really successful. We, we pivoted like everybody else did in 2020. We'd actually done a lot more terrestrial trainings prior to, to 2020. Um, and so when we uh, saw that the pandemic was kind of coming, we had the infrastructure to do the virtual kind of trainings and webinars, but we hadn't really initiated it in a, quite some time. And so it was a little bit of a ramp up and then out uh, kind of off to the races, I think uh, our highest numbers have been in the eight nine hundred range, wow. um, and then you know what the average for us is in the three to four hundred, um, and that's pretty consistent. Um, and then you know it depends on the audience, though. I will say that um, we I just launched another series called Leading Local, and it's targeted at complicated questions and complicated issues, and really you know to the point of that conversation we were having, the dialogue that people need to have, the discourse that we want to have, the the way that you engage. Um, how do you do that around to difficult topics? That's what that series is for. And we've been averaging two to 400 on those as well. So, wow. and that's primarily elected officials and high senior level leaders, um, specifically tackling issues of importance to them. We've seen that if the content is right, um, they are able and willing to sign on. And, and we've tried to schedule it so that we're not doing it on a Tuesday afternoon, but most council meetings are kind of getting queued up. We're trying to find the right times and windows when we know local leaders are available. Seven o'clock Thursday night, then you can do it with a beer, and there's probably not a council meeting happening. Don't think there's not a happy hour themed one planned soon that's going to be more in the four o'clock hour when we really let people let loose. As a society, we used to be a lot more effective at having difficult conversations at the bar with each other and just kind of talking through issues and a couple beers to smooth it over and take the edge off and try to come to some nice community resolution. I, I think we need to figure out how to get back there as soon as possible. I am not, I completely agree with you and it's, it's a tongue in cheek comment, but I think it's actually accurate. We do need to figure out how to communicate differently and better. We need to figure out how to collaborate. We need to figure out how to compromise too, I mean, for effective policy as well. And so that's one thing that personally I'm passionate about because 
because I see it in my everyday life. I see it in my family life, my personal life, my professional life. I think it's the future of, of how government needs to work. And so I'm committed to bringing that to the forefront and having those difficult conversations and maybe even teaching some strategies for how to bring that into the public space because um, I think it's been really hard, right? For people to, especially at the local level, to be human beings in their jobs, to actually, uh, you know, without getting in trouble. And yeah. so how do you have the right conversations in the right way with the right respect and the right honor for lived experiences and dignity of the community, but still also move the needle on things um, and bridge those divides? I would love to see that happen. Yeah. Uh, so we talked a lot about how you guys were able to shift during the pandemic to be successful, but um, God willing, uh, we are on the verge of exiting this uh, pandemic and seemingly a lot of the data suggests we're there and the science certainly suggests that we're getting there if we're not there. So um, how are you helping cities in their efforts to transition out of the pandemic? What role can ILG, uh, not just cities, I should say, all your all your agencies you guys help? How are you, how are you helping them and advising them right now? Yeah, well, as a nonprofit, one of the things I'm committed to, you know, as the leader of it is to try and not do mission creep, really focus uh, our, our efforts. And so and so that we can offer the right kind of guidance. You know, we can't do everything well. So we want to do the, do certain things really well. So the first thing that we've done is we've really connected closely with our affiliates. CSAC, CSDA and the League, um, Cal Cities are just um, really on the forefront of making sure that that pandemic response is um, effective. They've done a lot of work at the federal level to make sure that dollars are flowing and that will flow into those local agencies. Um, that's one of the biggest things is understanding that funding is coming and funding is going to be available for local agencies and kind of how to do that, especially, you know, and we're not talking about the big ones, the San Francisco's, the San Jose's, the LA's, they're, they're going to be able to figure it out. But all of these other smaller jurisdictions, mm -hmm. you know, really thinking through how they might be able to disseminate funds and, and make sure that there's uh, an approach that works um, in that approach. Um, the other thing that we're doing in every pillar, we're thinking through what does pandemic recovery look like? So obviously from a leadership standpoint, a governance standpoint, um, there's a lot to be discussed right around like things like equity. That's certainly going to be a priority as we go into the recovery. What is an equitable distribution of funds? How do we continue to think about equity across all the lines, whether it's race, environment or others? Um, the next one, I'd say public engagement. How do we help people really elevate beyond what used to be in-person meetings, right? Or you know this. Everybody used to say, here's come to this, come to the city council meeting, and this is the time, and this is your three minutes, and you sit down and you wait. And now we're in, we're gonna be in a model that's hybrid, likely, um, and very, very different. Expectations are changing, expectations have to be managed, and then also. I think we have to do things differently to help address the needs of the community to actually communicate and of the local agency leaders to listen. So we want to definitely help in that. Um, Re-engaging in sustainability. I mean, I think the pandemic was all about air, right? What we breathe and and the and the, the toxicity of that potentially. So I think it 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 elevated, but also diminished the importance of sustainability. And so we're kind of re-engaging in those conversations with that pillar and really also thinking about resilience. Mm -hmm. So this was a disaster. It was a, I don't know how you, I think it was, we, I think there's debates about whether it was man-made or natural, right? But the bottom line is we, we treated it like a disaster. Right. Community resilience is huge. So we really are focusing on resilience, um, not just because of this, but because we need to forever think about how local agencies can do that. So that's another piece of it is just having a resilience practice and helping local agencies build those resiliency plans. And then um, the last thing I guess would be in that workforce and civics pillar, I think there's still an opportunity to tell people how government works because as we come out of this pandemic, 
the lines are blurred between who's telling who to do what. Did the yep. county tell me to do this? Did the city tell me to do this? Am I allowed to do this? Is this the state? Maybe the president said this, that, or the other. We still need to educate. So as part of that, we're definitely moving in that direction too. Yeah. Um, that is a mouthful of uh, various ways you guys are going to be engaged on the <laughs> pandemic response. But I, I appreciate the thoroughness with which you're attacking it while not allowing screen probe. Excellent. No, no, uh, no, sorry, did I say screen quote? No scope creep. Well said. <laughs> no scope creep, right? We're a nonprofit. Even though we work with government, we can't technically operate like it. Yeah. Um, I guess a, a little bit, let me just kind of try to wrap this up a little bit more and talk about this engagement issue. So um, engagement in uh, local government is and I think you used some of this terminology before, but if not, I'll, I'll put the words in your mouth. But I mean, it is a trust building exercise, right? Like the more you can engage with the public, the more they can get comfortable with who it is that they're governed by, the more some trust can develop, the more opportunity is to actually collaborate. And I think some of that feeds into resiliency in governments, because a lot of times I think of resiliency and I'll think of like, oh, microgrids and battery backups and uh, you know, photovoltaic cells and like redundant water supplies, which are all fundamental. Like you got to have water, you got to have power. Um, but I think there's a lot to be said for resiliency in like cultural institutions, you know, nonprofits, Kiwanis clubs, what have you inside neighborhoods and communities where people still try to maintain a sense of community and trying to rise up and deliver when things go wrong. Right. And because uh, there's not enough government in the world to compensate for the power of people to people loving and caring for one another and trying to solve for their problems. Um, but a lot of that's rooted in uh kind of building community, building engagement, building trust. So I'll conflate a lot of those ideas and then just kind of dish it up to you and say, what does that, like, what are some of the things you advocate for from ILG around engagement, community engagement that build up some of that community resiliency that I'm describing? And, you know, what are, what are the things you advocate for and some best practices and some takeaways that elected leaders and city manager types who are listening to this podcast might think about? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, we we firstly advocate for it, right? So do more than the bare minimum, if if at all possible. That's number one. We you know authentic public engagement is what we like to promote and what we like to educate and train about. Um, we highlight you know the benefits of it. We have a, we have a, what was originally a two day workshop uh, training called Tears about specifically that how to do the entire landscape of community engagement planning. Um, and it's important for local agencies because, like you said, trust is really what it comes down to. Building a vibrant, you know, cohesive community is about the community trusting its government and vice versa. And there is a symbiotic relationship between the two. So there's an opportunity to build relationships in advance and really connect the dots so that when something like COVID hits, you have resources at the community level that can supplement what government can't do. There is so much opportunity for partnership between local agencies and specifically community-based organizations and even volunteers. And, and I think that when you have strong community engagement in advance, that really helps when you need them in a, in a, in a pinch. Mm. But we, we recommend, first of all, that you do it and you invest in it and you really um, you get your in, internal networks and your internal uh, stakeholders to buy into it. You train them on how to do it and then you execute in advance build relationships with local governments and around you, but then also community-based organizations in your neighborhoods to make sure that they're up to speed and they understand. The other thing that we do is we recommend, like I said, going above and beyond, making sure that there is um, an opportunity beyond that three-minute you know, public 
you know, comment period to communicate with your residents, with your stakeholders. They need to be heard. Listen, listen, listen is the number one thing that local agencies can do. And in order to do that, meet people where they are. And it wasn't always easy to do that in the pandemic, but virtually it might have been made a little bit better for some. Um, and, but try and meet the residents and the community leaders where they are. That's another huge, huge thing. And be prepared to listen before you act. Um, the last thing I will say is acknowledging the digital divide, right? The digital and technology issues, COVID showed us that it was important. We got to do Zoom, we got to do Skype, we got to do all different manners of virtual engagement. So many people don't have access to the internet, don't know how to use laptops, don't know how to use their phones, can't text. So really meet all of your community members where they are at the level that they are at and, and make sure that there's alternatives for those that aren't as savvy. Um, that will really help with that trust building component. And those are just a few foundational things. Yeah, I, I would, uh, to your point about listening, um, one of the things I contemplate and discuss with my clients all the time is that it's one thing to engage, which often means listening, but engagement also means being open to changing direction. So yeah. if you are listening without having any intent of putting what you hear to use, then the trust building exercise is going to fail. Uh, mm -hmm. So um, it's just important to talk about that. Like listening is more than the act of saying, um, okay, great, you got you have 10 minutes to tell me everything you want to say. And then you sit back and wait and listen for the 10 minutes and then you just go about your day. Um, yeah. I mean, obviously if it's complete insanity, like it's complete insanity, but to some extent you have an obligation where if you hear a bunch of stuff and there's some ideas floating that are fundamentally different than the vision that was initially articulated by government agency X, uh, you have an obligation to contemplate, are we prepared to ignore what we just heard or do we need to figure out how to truly listen and actually figure out if there's a better or different way and change course? You're totally right. I mean, if I, I could spend 30 minutes talking about all the things local governments need to do in the public engagement space. Listening, what we tell our, our, our partners on this is listen not to respond, but listen to actually listen, right? To, to be able to you know, internalize and empathize. And, and that's a totally different thing. And you're right, you know, just saying, hey, we had a public comment window and everybody came and we heard what they said and then we went ahead and did what we were going to do anyway. That is not your right building trust. And I, I think one of the other alternatives and, and things that we encourage our local partners to do is build in enough time. Public engagement takes time. Trust building takes time. Community mm -hmm. listening sessions take time. And if you've already developed your roadmap without any community input and you just want to make sure that they're you know, signing off on your plan, there is a high likelihood that they're not going to appreciate that. Um, and it's really, really important that communities are brought in at the beginning and not at the middle or the end, but that they're really, really brought in at the development of the concept so that there is that buy-in and there is that trust and there is that opportunity to change course if needed. And to, to that point, I will just say as, as a firm who does this outreach work um, and therefore we have to account for our time and contemplate it, uh, and you've done this in consulting engagements too through ILG, and you did it when you were in your prior position, uh, it does take time. Like the moment somebody will ask me about a project and an estimate or something like that, my, my first question is, well, how much community engagement do you want? Because the amount of community engagement you want will have a 400% impact on the cost of doing this project, right? And it's yeah. not because I want to scare you away from community engagement, but it's just more an indicator that it takes time. It is hard to get people to engage. And, you know, at some point you're wondering like, well, if it's hard to get people engaged, then do we really need to hear what they have to say? And the answer is, well, the problem is, is if you don't, and then you yeah. get kind of deep down the road with the project and then it blows up on you, now where are you? Right now you're in really deep trouble and you've wasted a lot of time and a lot of money. So well, one of the first things we can we tell in, our, in one of our trainings is to 
figure out what level it is to your point, because yeah, you, you, there may be a public engagement efforts where you literally don't have the time. You've got to go with the shortest possible uh, time frame and route. Yep. And, and in which case that's when those relationships that you've built uh, come in really well. You can come in and talk to some key stakeholders and do it a little bit more quickly. And maybe it's not the most robust three to five month effort, but it's, you know, you still get some key input, but you do it quickly. But then there's also the the very long, very expensive, you know, but very meaningful, um, full process. That's it's, and those are totally different on that continuum. Um, they they achieve different results. Um, and and the key though is if you built the trust, you built the relationships, and you've taken the time on the front end, you can even do very fast public engagement uh, processes and projects yep. um, successfully if you need yep. to. Hundred percent. Erica, thank you so much for the conversation today. This has been super insightful and I appreciate the time. Could you um, tell our audience a little bit about where they can learn more about ILG and how to get a hold of you and then talk to you about all the brilliance and ideas that you have to share? Absolutely. Hopefully you can come to our website. It's ca-ilg.com. Stop. Sorry. CA-ILG.org. Um, and I, I do know my my website. And then we can also go on any social media handle. We're on Twitter, we're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn. Awesome. Okay. Well, I appreciate you joining us today. It was a very great conversation. Really appreciated it. That's today's report. My thanks to Erica for joining us from the whole public CEO team and myself, writer Todd Smith. Thank you for your time. We hope you learned something new and inspiring that'll help you in your public service. Remember, Public CEO has a daily newsletter that is free to those who sign up at publicceo.com. If you have feedback, questions, or guest suggestions for Public CEO Report, please email alex at publicceo.com.